This sermon on uh, Isaiah 27 is going to be a bit of a roundabout, though we will survey the text and step through its thought flow. I'm also taking the opportunity to address a couple of other things relevant to our journey through Isaiah. One arises from this passage, and the other is more general. But in addition to surveying the text, we'll talk about Leviathan, the dragon monster mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 27. And we're going to talk about Bible translations, how they differ, why they differ the way they do, and what you ought to do about it. But let's begin by listening to Isaiah chapter 27 in full. In that day, the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing servant, Leviathan, that twisted servant, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. In that day, sing to her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment. Lest any hurt it, I keep it night and day. Fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me. And he shall make peace with me. Those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud, and fill the face of the world with fruit. Has he struck Israel as he struck those who struck him? Or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? In measure, by sending it away, you contended with it. He removes it by his rough wind in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the iniquity of Jacob will be covered. And this is all the fruit of taking away his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones that are beaten to dust, wooden images and incense altars shall not stand. Yet the fortified city will be desolate, the habitation forsaken and left like a wilderness. There the calf will feed, and there it will lie down and consume its branches. When its boughs are withered, they will be broken off. The women come and set them on fire, for it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he who made them will not have mercy on them, and he who formed them will show them no favor. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, O you <coughs> children of Israel. So it shall be in that day. The great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. In the larger context, this is the fourth and final chapter of Isaiah's little apocalypse. And in typical end-of-the-world fashion, it combines images of ultimate devastation with images of ultimate blessing. There's a twisting serpent slain with a severe sword, a city utterly devastated. But there's also a vineyard the Lord is caring for. Idolatrous images toppled, their altars smashed, and as the last verse tells us, everything's going to be all right. 
The great trumpet will be blown and the scattered people gathered to worship the Lord in the holy mount of Jerusalem. Our passage begins, In that day the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. That sounds like a remarkable passage, and it is. We'll devote some time to Leviathan. But as we've already observed in earlier sermons that verse divisions are not inspired, so the placement of these lines in chapter 27 illustrates that neither are the chapter divisions inspired. These lines would have been better marked as the conclusion of chapter 26, the major break occurring between verse 1 and 2 of chapter 27. And let me say a bit more about that. We believe the Bible, what the Bible says about itself, that it is inspired. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1.21. Heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus' words will by no means pass away, Matthew 24.35. The word of God is fixed, final, and flawless. Amen. However, the chapter and verse divisions are not part of the original revelation. The earliest texts are just words. No chapters, no verses, no punctuation. Over time, to aid navigation, first chapter divisions in the 13th century, and then verse divisions in the 16th century were added. Here and there in the Bible itself, you can see how they maneuvered around this. When Jesus quotes from Isaiah in the synagogue at Nazareth, Luke 4.17, he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. We call that place Isaiah 61, verse 1. The writer of Hebrews says, chapter 2, verse 6, One testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? We call that place Psalm 8, verse 4. So thank heaven for chapters and verses. Imagine trying to navigate without them. You know that place in John about eternal life? Well, the phrase eternal or everlasting life occurs 17 times in the Gospel of John. Oh, I mean the one about believing an eternal life. There are five places where the verb believe occurs with the phrase eternal life in the Gospel of John. It's so much easier to say, you know John 3.16? Yeah, I know John 3.16. Chapters and verses. Very good idea. They're wonderful. They're just not perfect. And in portions of Scripture difficult to understand from the get-go, such as Isaiah, we need all the help we can get. Practical point, the major break is between verses 1 and 2 of chapter 27. Now beginning at verse 2. In that day sing to her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I keep it night and day. Fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. Those who come he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Here we have the song of a vineyard the Lord is keeping. 
And this far into Isaiah, we need to have our antenna up for his references to himself. Because we've already had a song of a vineyard in chapter 5. That imagery was negative. He expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Well, in chapter 27, the Lord is tending the vineyard more assertively, watching over it night and day. He's not angry with it, verse 4, fury is not in him. If briars and thorns arise, he'll deal with them. Or better yet, let briars and thorns make peace with him. Let them surrender. Let them submit. By his sovereign grace, they can become part of the vineyard. Verse 6, those who come he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. So Israel is or will become a vineyard so bountiful the world will be full of its fruit. Another of Isaiah's many images of the coming messianic kingdom. Then in verse 7, we encounter another of his stylistic flourishes. Has he struck Israel? Has he struck those who struck him? Or have they been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? You may recall chapter 24, verse 16, where Isaiah used the same root word, bagad, five times in a row. The treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Indeed, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. Well, here he uses one root three times in a row, then follows with another three times in a row. The first is nakah, to strike, and the second is harag, to slay. The ESV translation tightens this up, better conveying the effect. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? I will repeat. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Linguistically impressive, but what's the point? These are rhetorical questions making the point that although Israel would be punished, it would not be to the extent its enemies were punished. Has the Lord struck Israel as he struck those who struck them? No, he has not done that. Has Israel been slain as their slayers were slain? No, they have not been slain to that extent. That can be kind of difficult to follow on its own, but another less than clear verse comes right after it. In measure, by sending it away, you contended with it. He removes it by his rough wind in the day of the east wind. Taking the context into account, it is the nation, the people. God disciplined them by exile, by sending them away, blowing them away as with the wind. He contended with them, and he won. It worked, verse 9. Therefore, by this, the iniquity of Jacob will be covered. And this is all the fruit of taking away his sin, when he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones that are beaten to dust. Wooden images and incense altars shall not stand. As a result of the exile, contention, the people finally forsook idolatry. The stones of their pagan altars were beaten to dust, and the wooden images were pulled down. Idolatry had plagued the people from the beginning. The first two of the Ten Commandments being, 
You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Simple enough. But if you know the story, you know even as Moses was up on the mountain receiving this, they were setting up the golden calf. And they were plagued with idolatry from Mount Sinai all the way through the kingdom period to the exile. But when they returned, they really did seem to be cured. From the return all the way to the the New Testament period, they were free of idolatry. Now, they had other problems, but idolatry was not among them. The altar stones remained dust, and the wooden images were not raised again. Verses 10 and 11 tell of a fortified city desolated. Calves grazed there, women gathered firewood. The people had no understanding, and the Lord showed no mercy. No understanding, no mercy. Some commentators think this is a picture of Jerusalem under judgment, but I'm with those who think it's the world city. Rebellious humanity pictured as a single city. Isaiah employs this image often, and it permeates scripture all the way from the initial rebellious city, Babel, Genesis 11, all the way to that city's final destruction in Revelation 18. But don't miss the happy ending. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh. It's harvest time. He's bringing in the sheaves. From the channel of the river, that is the Euphrates, to the brook of Egypt. From all the lands where their enemies had driven them, they shall be gathered one by one. That's a remarkable little touch. Gathered one by one to worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. This far into Isaiah, one is tempted to say it's still the same old story. The story of judgment with a remnant. We only glimpse the remnant fleetingly, but it seems they are always there. In Habakkuk 3.2, the prophet prays to God, In wrath, remember mercy. And thus far into Isaiah, that could be a sort of a theme statement. In wrath, he will remember mercy, the Lord is going to judge, and he will preserve a remnant. So, let's talk about Leviathan, chapter 27, verse 1. In that day the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. And I want to use Leviathan to make a broader point, which is we need to take Scripture on its own terms. To properly understand and apply the Bible to our lives, we must take it on its terms, understand it in its context. And there are two extremes to be avoided. The dynamic Luther was referencing when he said, human reason is like a drunken peasant. Help him up one side of a horse, and he falls off the other. And there's some interpretive history which comes into play you may not be aware of, so I'll summarize briefly. Since the time of Jesus, the history of Western civilization has largely been a history of belief in the Bible. That is not to say obedience to the Bible, but belief in the Bible. 
As the scientific mindset developed, say 17th, 18th centuries, some people came to view the Bible the same way they viewed Greek and Roman mythology. The Bible was seen as simply Hebrew mythology. And as this view developed, one of its main arguments was that some of the images and themes in the Bible are found in other cultures which were older. Therefore, the reasoning went, the Bible borrowed or inherited these themes. So, rather than being a revelation from God, the Bible was seen as derivative, simply the development of mythic themes from a Hebrew perspective, just as Greek or Egyptian mythology developed them from their perspectives. The flood story would be an example of this, and Leviathan is another example. So in this view, which I'm sure you recognize in a general sense, the Bible is simply a collection of myths and superstitions of the Jewish people, no more real or true than a collection of Greek or Norse mythology would be. Okay, that's one extreme. In response to this, for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction, in response to this, believers articulated the position that the Bible is super true, absolutely true. Every word is true. Now, I believe that. Amen. Here at Shepherd's Gate, our uh, statement of faith is pretty bare bones. We say we believe in the full and final authority of Scripture. Right on. But, now we're going to talk about different ways to apply that belief. Because some well-intentioned people take the idea that the Bible is super true and fall off the other side of the horse. Views of Leviathan are one example of this, but let's start with another, which is creation. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. That is Genesis 1, 1 through 5. And I believe every word of it. Amen. However... I do not necessarily believe that the first day was a 24-hour day like today, June 2nd, 2019. And there's a group of well-intentioned people with whom I'm in agreement about 99% of the time. But in this instance, they would say that if I don't believe it was a 24-hour day like today, if I don't believe that, I'm denying the Word of God, undermining the basis of our authority, and on a slippery slope quickly leading to God-forsaken places. This is an instance of the other extreme. So, in general, there are two positions, two sides of the field. On one side, there are those who think the Bible is a collection of myths. On the other side, those who believe the Bible is the revealed Word of God. I'm on the Word of God side of the field. What I'm saying is, on this side of the field, on our side of the field... There are those who would apply that belief in a manner which says, if you don't believe the creation occurred in six 24-hour days, you're not just wrong, you're desperately wrong, dangerously wrong. And I think that's a mistake. This is the other extreme I'm talking about. Sticking with Genesis 1, I'll tell you what I know. I know in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, full stop, amen. 
If you don't know that, you're wrong, and desperately wrong. However, I also know various interpretations of the rest of Genesis 1. And frankly, I'm not certain which one of them is correct. I know the gap theory seems pretty plausible to me, but I'm not certain of it. I know a day-age theory, don't think there's much in that. I know an interpretation premised on changes in the speed of light, which would answer the question, did creation occur in six 24-hour days? It would answer that question, yes and no. And there are others, which I won't bother to mention. Some 19th century wag, I think it was Artemis Ward, said of some debated issue, the research of so many eminent men has thrown so much darkness on it that if they continue, we shall soon know nothing at all. (laughs) And that's not far from how I feel about specifically nailing down Genesis 1. So how does this pertain to Leviathan? In the religious mythic mindset of perhaps the world, but certainly the ancient Near East, there was a great sea dragon embodying chaos and destruction. And the gods had to slay it to make the world a habitable place. Within Babylonian mythology, the creature was called Tiamat. The Egyptians called it Apep. And here in Isaiah 27.1, this fleeing, twisting servant the Lord slays looks very much like the mythic Tiamat Apep. Now, remember the idea that the Bible is just Hebrew mythology. Those who believe that would look at Isaiah 27.1 and go, there's a textbook example of how the Bible is just derivative mythology. The Babylonians and Egyptians told their stories, so the Jews copied them and had to have their god kill the chaos monster. From that perspective, seeing it as mythic or symbolic proves the Bible isn't inspired. It's in light of that that some of our well-meaning friends who correctly believe the Bible is inspired go on to incorrectly insist Leviathan must be a literal creature. I appreciate what they're trying to do, but I think in this case their cure is worse than the disease. Because I would say there isn't a, there isn't a problem to be fixed here. Isaiah, it's not a problem for the Bible to use mythic imagery. Isaiah is speaking in terms his immediate hearers and their contemporaries would understand. In fact, uh, there's an instructive point that gets missed if you over-literalize this. That is, in the common myth, the chaos creature is slain at the beginning of the world, has to be slain in order for the world to exist. Yet here in Isaiah 27, we're at the end of the world, and it's still there. One of the most important questions about belief in God has to do with the problem of evil. If God is all-powerful, all-good, and all-knowing, how could he permit this disease, that accident? Why doesn't he stop this war? Why didn't he prevent that crime? Those are excellent questions, vital questions. The only point we have time for right now is that understanding that that twisted serpent is still alive is an important part of the biblical answer to the problem of evil. And if you think in order to protect the integrity of the word of God, you've got to take that literally, you will miss that point. Only at the end will the serpent be slain, and only by the Lord will it be slain. 
All this is to say, there are those who think the Bible is just a collection of myths. They are wrong. It is the inspired word of God. Yet, some well-intentioned people who believe that can go a bit overboard, fall off the other side of the horse, and end up literalizing some of the imagery that's employed. I think chapter 27, in chapter 27, verse 1, Isaiah describes God's ultimate victory in mythic terms his hearers and their contemporaries would easily understand. In the end, God triumphs, all shall be most well. On the way there, we have his perfect, inerrant word to guide us, but let us be humble and thoughtful in interpreting it. And, speaking of his perfect, inerrant word, let's talk about translation. Because, since the Old Testament's in Hebrew, the New Testament's in Greek, and we're speaking English, we have to talk about the Bible in translation. And there, I'm using the singular translation. If only that were the case. But alas, it is not. In 21st century America, we can't talk about the Bible in translation, singular. We must talk about the Bible in translations, plural. I was talking with Jess about this sermon, and she said, you know, I think you're really more concerned about issues in translation than most people are. (laughs) And I'm sure she's right about that. And I wrestle with these things in study and sermon prep, and I've just got some stuff to get off my chest. So maybe indulge me a bit. But I have four things to say about Bible translations. One, it is difficult to conceive of what we have lost by not having one agreed-upon translation. Amen. Two, get married. Three, lean literal. And four, caveat emptor. That's that Latin phrase. It means buyer beware. These will be reviewed, but we start with point one. It is difficult to conceive of what we have lost by not having one translation. Can't spend much time here. It would take up this sermon and several more. So I'll just leave you with that thought and a proverb. Someday when you're casting around for something spiritual to think about, maybe pull this out and give it a go. It's a military proverb from Napoleon, they say. One bad general is better than two good ones. I repeat, one bad general is better than two good ones. It is difficult to conceive of what we have lost by not having one agreed-upon translation. That's all I have to say about that. Three points remain, and I will broach them by telling you this story. A few years ago, I was at Powell's, the wonderful, huge, used bookstore here in Portland, downtown Powell's, the original one, the the true Powell's, (laughs) where they have aisles and aisles of shelves and shelves of books. And I was in the Bible aisle, because I'm always looking for particular things that might show up there. section devoted to Bibles is about 25 feet long and perhaps 8 feet high, a wall of Bibles couple thousand, I'd guess, arranged by major translation, minor translation, boutique translation, parallel Bibles, and so on. And for me, that's a comfort zone. 
you could just about pull any one of those Bibles off the shelf, and I could tell you where it came from, what it's trying to do, and how it differs from the ones beside it, above it, and below it. I'm right at home in the Bible aisle of Powell's. And I had it all to myself, pursuing some interesting question, when a couple of young ladies walked up, 20-ish, and you could tell they were a bit overwhelmed, staring at the wall of Bibles. And one said to the other, kind of whispering, I just want a Bible. (laughs) And the other said, what kind of Bible? And the first one said, a holy Bible. And that pierced my heart. (laughs) Because it gave me a glimpse of the wall of Bibles through their eyes. It's a comfortable, enjoyable place for me. I see it in terms of history, theology, sort of a condensation of the arguments and options within and around Christianity. And I like it. It's interesting to me, but not to them. They were looking at a wall of Bibles, thousands of them, no two of which are exactly the same, because it's not just different translations, it's different editions of the same translation. And not unreasonably, to the mind of someone coming from the outside in, there is like one holy Bible. It must exist somewhere. People are always talking about it and quoting from it. And they've come to the, one of the most renowned bookstores in the world to get it, maybe ask an employee, where will we find the Bible, and been directed to this aisle expecting to find it. But when they arrive, instead of encountering a single book, which is it, find themselves confronted with a bewildering array of books, somehow all of which are it, But if they're all it, why are they different? And if they're all different, how can they be it? Well, I said, excuse me, I couldn't help overhearing that you're looking for a Bible. And I'm sure it's overwhelming to see all these different books. I'm a devout student of the Bible, and believe it or not, most of these books are just different translations and different editions of the one book but I'll bet you'd like just a plain, simple, holy Bible. She said, yes. So I went to the particular point, pulled one off the shelf, handed it to her, and I said, there. That is what you are looking for. That's a plain, simple edition of the Holy Bible. She said, thank you. They went on their way. But what should we do about the wall of Bibles? the bewildering array of translations. Our remaining three points are get married, lean literal, and caveat emptor. By saying get married, I mean you should have a single primary Bible translation, which you regularly read and study. This will be the translation you memorize and meditate on. You should use other translations, if at all, to supplement your understanding of this one. You should, so to speak, be married to one translation of the Bible. When I came to faith, mid-70s, there was a clear choice between the New American Standard, published in 1971, and the New International Version, New Testament, published 1973, Whole Bible 1978. And it was necessary to choose between them because... 
you've got to get married. Would have been nuts to try to use both translations, like the New American Standard on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and the NIV on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. I had to choose between them. On what basis? What's the difference? This brings us to the spectrum of translation and the point I'm labeling lean literal. There's a range of options in how you go about translating something, like a spectrum with different philosophies on either end. At one end, there's a very literal word-for-word approach. At the other end, free phrasing, shading into paraphrasing, where instead of translating the words, the aim is to translate the meaning. And that may lead you to use very different words in translation to convey the meaning of the source language. In current terminology, these approaches are designated formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. Formal equivalence being the word-for-word approach, dynamic equivalence the meaning-for-meaning approach. The New American Standard employed formal equivalence and the NIV dynamic equivalence. Dynamic equivalence produces a translation that sounds better, smoother, to our ear. This has absolutely nothing to do with accuracy. It may be wildly inaccurate, but it sounds better as a result of the process. Formal equivalence, on the other hand, is bound by its own process, bound to the wording of the original text. It's translating those words into English, and it's more concerned with conveying those words into grammatically correct English than restating their meaning in current English. Of the five most popular modern English translations, Three, New American Standard, New King James, English Standard Version, use formal equivalence. The other two, the NIV and the New Living Translation, NLT, use dynamic equivalence. And though I think that all of those translations are, more or less, trustworthy, I'm saying lean literal because formal equivalence is safer than dynamic equivalence less subject to abuse, and I will give you two instances of abuse. One is little and comical, the other huge and catastrophic. You may recognize the phrase, his terrible swift sword. It's from the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which was practically the anthem of the northern cause in the Civil War. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the faithful, fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Okay, the phrase, his terrible swift sword is pretty good, you think? That's a winner. That's sticking with you. It's not from the Bible. It's from this song. Lyrics composed by Julia Ward Howe in 1861. Back in Isaiah 27, the chapter begins by saying, In that day the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan. That's the New King James. New American Standard, In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan with his fierce and great and mighty sword. 
ESV, in that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan. They all sound the same because they're all doing the same thing. They're translating the words into English, formal equivalents. But the dynamic equivalence, New Living Translation reads, In that day the Lord will take his terrible swift sword and punish Leviathan. And that may sound nice, but I hope to help you understand why that's a problem. The problem is that is not what it says. The word for sword is there, and all by terrible, as a translation of uh, the Hebrew word kasheh, New King James has severe, New American Standard fierce, terrible could work there, but there is nothing remotely equivalent to swift. And the words that are there, great and strong, get vaporized. Or maybe they got transformed into swift. You say, Chris, I think you're making a mountain out of a molehill. I acknowledge by itself that single phrase is not a big deal. But it illustrates a principle which is a very big deal. This is the difference between formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. The difference between translating what it says and translating what it means. What it says is a matter of fact. Black and white. Words right there on the paper. What it means... It's a little, a little more flexible. There's some ambiguity. It's arguable. Formal equivalence has a built-in safeguard, which dynamic equivalence lacks. Dynamic equivalence is hazardous. You might think, Chris, if this terrible swift sword thing is an example of hazard, I'm not that concerned. Well, I said I'd give you a little example and a big one. That's the little example. Here's the big one. The matter of gender-inclusive language. Both the Old Testament and the New, Hebrew and Greek, stem to stern, use masculine terms and grammatically masculine forms inclusively. For example, when 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, you'd have to have an IQ somewhere around room temperature to think that that meant he desires all men to be saved, but not all women. We understand this is the way human language is used. Nevertheless, in the remorseless quest for the egalitarian brave new world, some have concluded that the Bible needs to be fixed. There's a pun intended there. And have changed thousands and thousands of verses to make them gender-inclusive. And now we're bridging from lean literal to caveat emptor. This is why you need to beware. Over on the formal equivalent side of the scale, New American Standard, New King James, ESV, this issue does not exist. The question could not possibly arise because they know what they're doing. They're translating what it says. But over here, on the meaning side... It's a rather intriguing, inviting question. Because what does it mean? 
What does it really mean? What ought it to mean? You see, on the formal equivalent side, it's black and white. It just says what it says. On the dynamic equivalent side, there's no hard and fast line between what it means and what it ought to mean and what you'd like it to mean. To put the matter in another framework, dynamic equivalence is how you get, how you find rights to abortion and homosexual marriage in the Constitution. The document transparently says nothing remotely about that. The words are fixed, but the meaning, ah, the meaning we can massage, the meaning we can expand. So, this is why I recommend marrying a formal equivalence translation, New American Standard, New King James, or ESV. And I make that recommendation on the basis of bitter personal experience. Because when I started out back in the 70s, I married the NIV. And in 2011, they changed it, scrubbed it stem to stern. Thousands and thousands of changes to make it gender-inclusive. I did not leave that translation. That translation left me. I didn't change. I'm just standing there. And all of a sudden, a different Bible was going by that name. So we conclude with caveat emptor. Let the buyer beware. The Bible is the inspired word of God. Translating it into the language of the people is a holy and sacred duty. Amen. It would be nice if the only motivation behind Bible translation was the spiritual benefit of the people. Alas, that is not the case. This is transparent in the instance of the New World Translation. That's the one done by the Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the deity of Christ. So they produce a Bible translation which consistently mistranslates passages about the deity of Christ. Their agenda is pretty obvious. Others are less so. And I'm sorry to say, at some level, money, filthy lucre, comes into play. Consider, for example, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, published in 2004. It's reasonably good translation, dynamic equivalence, much like the NIV, much like the NIV. So much like the NIV, one wonders why it exists. The only reason it exists is so the Southern Baptist Convention doesn't have to pay royalties to the NIV. That is why this translation exists. That, of course, is not what they say. They say there's been a need for a new, more accurate translation of the Bible, and here it is. Codswallop. Shame on them. Well, it's time to wrap up. I've taken a considerable portion of this sermon to talk about translations. As my wife observed, I'm more concerned about them than most people are. And I appreciate the opportunity to unburden myself. In conclusion, what I've said is, it is difficult to conceive of what we have lost by not having one agreed-upon translation. Get married. You should have one single primary translation. Lean literal. 
I'm saying that should be a formal equivalence translation, New American Standard, New King James, or ESV, because, caveat emptor, let the buyer beware, various agendas come into play in Bible translation. The translation philosophy of formal equivalence, word for word, is a safeguard. By definition, it keeps other things from happening. The translation philosophy of dynamic equivalence, though not bad in and of itself, leads a door wide open for other agendas. And they have appeared, they have stepped through that door, and they'll be coming through bigger and faster as the days roll on. So, that is what I have to say about translations. And we did preach on Isaiah 27. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your living word, our Lord Jesus Christ, and your written word. And Lord, at one level, it's embarrassing to sit here amidst the, the uh, overflow of riches that we have in Bibles and Bible translations when we know there are, there are people uh, who, who don't have your word. But Lord, the very abundance presents its own problem. Would you... Help us be discerning. Um, Lord, help us remember uh, uh, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of people out there who are just looking at a wall of Bibles and, and maybe they just like a holy Bible and don't know what to do about it. Lord, may we live and embody your word to them and may we help them understand uh, your written word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.